Amen. You guys ever watch a movie and uh, try to decide which character you are in the movie? I mean, obviously, I'm Luke Skywalker, right? I mean, that's, have you guys ever thought that? No. Uh, maybe you're thinking I kind of look like one of those Ewoks. I know some people that kind of look more like Chewbacca. Um, but maybe you watch, you watch a movie, you're trying to think, who am I in this story? Maybe you watch a, a movie and you try to imagine, what would I do if I was in that scenario? You ever do that? Like, I, wonder, I wonder if I would be the good guy. I wonder if I would be the villain. I wonder if I would be the sort of the, the plucky comic relief, maybe. Who would you be? <laughs> would you be in, in this story? Who are you in the story of your life? Are you the hero? Are you the villain? Some of you might feel like a little bit of both, maybe at times, depending on the day. Uh, we usually assume we're the hero and that we will do all the right things, but that's not often true. Uh, there's a movie that came out, I, it's maybe been 10 years. It's, it's the best Batman movie that's ever been made. I think it's called The Dark Knight. The Dark Knight Rising, something like that. Dark Knight. Have you guys seen this? Yeah, like three people. Great. Okay, um, it's the best Batman. And they made like a million Batman movies, so it's, you know. It's, so it's 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 uh, what's so interesting about it is that the 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 story, the meta story within it, is that Batman, in order to save Gotham, has to appear to become evil, has to allow everyone to think that he is the bad guy. So that the good guy, who actually ends up being the bad guy, looks like the good guy. Are you confused? Yeah. Okay, let me try it again. So Batman realizes the only way he can truly save Gotham is if he makes the, the bad guy look like the good guy, Harvey Dent, and he allows Gotham to think he's the bad guy. What a brilliant idea. Where did that come from? I, I tell you where it didn't come from. It didn't come from Hollywood. It came directly from the mind of God. See, this is how God has saved in his saving. Uh, this is how God's saving the universe. He saved it by sending his son, according to 2 Corinthians 5.20. Um, it says, we implore you on the behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me tell you the fancy name for that. That's called penal substitutionary atonement. That means Jesus took the penalty, became, it says, became sin so that we could become righteous. He was made to look like evil itself. He took the blame for evil itself, even though he didn't produce it, even though he wasn't evil. And in return, we walk away free. Those of us who believe and have saving faith in Christ. Similar thing if you're not a Batman fan. Maybe you've read the Narnia books. Maybe you've seen the Narnia movies. Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe. C.S. Lewis, who was a believer, was trying to picture this reality in the moment where Aslan chooses to take the place of Edmund. Edmund's failed miserably. He deserves death. The witch owns his life. He belongs to her. So Aslan inserts himself in place of her, substitutionarily takes her place and gives and accredits life to him, and the lion dies. Where did that thinking come from? It came from the gospel. That's what Jesus does. He's our hero. He's our hero, and the way that he chooses to save is not particularly conventional. It's not the way you would expect him to save. It's not him coming onto the scene, guns blazing, all military might, taking the world by power. He will do that, but first, he infiltrated behind enemy lines, appearing to become sin itself. He took the wrath of God, absorbed the penalty of sin, and gave us, those who are in him, perfect righteousness. What a hero. What a hero Jesus is. There's a line in that Batman movie that I think is interesting. 
Maybe you've heard it. Harvey Dent, the guy that ends up turning into the bad guy. He says, so, so we either die the hero or we live long enough to see ourselves become the villain. And there's some truth to that. You know, a lot of the people that we praise in culture, they died young. Have you noticed that? They, they didn't live long enough to disqualify themselves. They didn't live long enough to become the villain. They sort of died the hero. What I want you to think about this morning as we get into this passage is not only this idea of, of penal substitutionary atonement, but I want you to think about who am I in this story? Where am I at in this story? Where would I be in this story? Whom would I be in this story? What character would I most likely be? And, and maybe even a, a more sharp point on it, what character are you now in regards to the person of Christ in this story? Let's take a look at this world-shaking scene that we're going to look at this morning and see if you can see your face in the story. Let me tell you where we're at in Mark. Okay, we are towards the end. Mark slows everything down. Mark is the immediately guy. Everything's fast, everything's quick, everything's next, and then he slows the train down once we get to this last week of Jesus' life. It's called the Passion Week the most important time in Jesus' life. It's the time that he came for, and that is to come, he came to die. And so Mark slows down, and he starts to give more details. He starts to bring us more into these scenes and, and, and develop them more for us. Not as much as some of the other gospel writers. He's still fairly brief. But really, from this point forward, we're going to almost exclusively look at the crucifixion, the death of Christ in the gospel of Mark. Last week was Jesus' last time being with his disciples. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane, a place he chose because it was quiet, where he could interact with the Father and deal with this, this deep grief that he was anticipating, knowing that he was about to not only take man's worst, but take the wrath of his Father on himself. And he asked the disciples to sit and pray with him. Remember, Jesus is a man, fully God, fully man. He, he wants his, his friends, his disciples to sit with him in his grief. And they what? They fell asleep. Not once, not twice, three times. They fell asleep. They failed miserably. And then Jesus says, it's enough. The guards, the temple guards make their way into the garden. Judas leading them exactly to the, the location of Jesus where he was um, with his disciples in the garden, Judas betrays Jesus with this kiss, calling him rabbi, and they arrest him. This is where we pick up in the scene. And our scene today is of utmost importance in the biblical narrative. Our scene today is the scene of Jesus' trial, if you can call it that. This was, an, as we'll see, it was an illegal trial. It was not a biblical trial. It was not a godly trial. It was not a true trial. It was a, a, a sham of a trial. It was a midnight secrecy trial. It was, a, it was a trial that was really more about pageantry and falsehood and bribes, and it was about really getting to the bottom of who Christ was and whether he deserved to die. This morning, our text is going to remind us of the innocence of Christ, the Passover lamb who's been led into Jerusalem to be the once and all final sacrifice for atonement. And he must be examined. He is going to be examined by the high priest and by the Sanhedrin and by Pilate and by Herod. And all will find him guiltless, yet still kill him. In our text, we're going to see Jesus is found faithful. He did what Peter couldn't do. He did what Adam couldn't do. He stood up against all the pressure of all of, of the realms of darkness and all of man's worst. Jesus was faithful to the end, which is why our faith is in his what? Faithfulness, not in our own faith, as we learned last week, right? 
So this is where we punch into the story. One more thing we learned, by the way, in our text this morning, just previewing here, is we learn about the systematic rejection of Christ by all of humanity. Everyone, everyone is going to reject Christ. The disciples are going to fail and flee. Peter is going to deny him. Pilate, who represents the Gentile world, is going to send him off to die. Herod, the people, the crowd, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, everyone is at this point rejecting Christ. This is the systematic rejection of the Messiah, and this is what we're going to look at this morning. So let's pick it up in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. The high priest. Now, Mark doesn't tell us who the high priest is. He doesn't need to. The other gospel writers do. His name is Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest. The high priest, it was his job. He was a Sadducee, by the way, not a Pharisee. Uh, It was his job to basically run the temple. And the temple was not... Um, really a holy thing. It was a, it was a money-making scheme, like a, a, a mafia-esque kind of a, a, a gangster type of a scene. And the high priest was more like a, a modern, or not a modern, he was a first century gangster is what he was. Okay, he had lots of power, he loved money, and he used that power to his advantage. Now, Jesus has been heckled by the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, all throughout his ministry, but now he's gone all the way to the Supreme Court, to the Sanhedrin, this combination of three different groups, as we'll see. So they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and scribes came together. Notice those three parties, chief priests, scribes, elders. These three groups made up the high council in Jerusalem, 71 members, or 70 plus one. The scribes were the religious The elders were those who had notoriety and and authority within the communities, and lastly, the high priests, or the the priests, which were made up mostly of Sadducees. Together, these guys represented the the high court, the supreme court of the Jews, and they had almost exclusive authority over most things, except, as you might imagine, death. They can't put anyone to death. They can't execute. And that's the only reason that they're going to involve Pilate, as you'll see. Otherwise, they would have just killed him right then and there. They would have arrested him in the middle of the night. They would have put him to death, stoned him. That was the execution of the Jews, was stoning. The crucifixion thing, that was Roman. Okay, that was imported through um, the, the vile thinking of the Gentile world. So they need Pilate here. So these, these three groups that make up the Sanhedrin, they're convening in the middle of the night. They arrest Jesus, 54. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now, Mark wants to introduce us to us the scene in which Peter is about to deny Christ. And the scene looks like this. The guards come and arrest Jesus, and they're leading him about a mile into the city itself, into the house of Caiaphas. Caiaphas would have no doubt been a rich man with a large house. And the way that these houses were formed was that all of the rooms were on the outside, and on the inside, there would be an inner court, an outside area, with a gateway that would lead through. It's probably multi-level. That's why it says Peter was down lower in the courtyard. So Peter, not really sure what to do. He just lopped off a guy's ear, and then Jesus didn't seem very happy about it. Fixes the guy's ear, and they're, they're being led into Jerusalem, and all the disciples just flee. But then there's Peter. And Peter's a little different than the other disciples, right? He's still feeling pretty brave at this point. He's still feeling pretty zealous. He's still feeling a little eager to prove himself. Jesus doesn't seem to have any faith in his faith. So surely the best thing to do at this point would be to follow. So Peter follows from a distance. And he finds himself awkwardly in the courtyard of Caiaphas with his hood over his 
face, no doubt, trying to hide himself and just sort of mingle with the soldiers around the fire while he stays warm. It's probably two, three, I don't know, not three. It's probably two in the morning-ish, middle of the night. And Peter's just kind of like, maybe this is where I'm supposed to be. I don't know. Where would, where would you go? You ever thought, like, where would you go if you were Peter? I don't know. Peter seems like this is the right place to be. Now, the chief priests... And the whole council, now the camera's going to pan away from Peter and pan into the inner house of Caiaphas as some of the Sanhedrin convene. 55, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking the testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. This is so backwards, isn't it? They've already brought him in, and now they're looking for evidence. For many bore false witness, notice false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. Now, catch this, okay? Uh, The the scribe, the Pharisee, the Sanhedrin, they're trying to think, what's our best play here? What's going to get Pilate to take Jesus seriously so they kill him? Because they want Pilate to kill Jesus. This is what they want. They're thinking, you know, I remember, I remember Jesus talking about this temple and how it's going to be destroyed. So let's, let's pay some people, we know from the other gospels, that these guys literally bribed false witnesses to come in and make up this story about Jesus destroying the temple. Now, Jesus did say he, the temple would be destroyed, but what was he talking about? Anybody? What was he talking about? He's talking about himself. He's talking about his body. He says, my, my body's going to be destroyed, but it's going to be raised up, right? They can't even get the facts right. The, the, the stories are not matching up uh, immediately, so they sort of jettison that idea. I guess we can't go with the temple thing, even though that would have got Jesus killed quickly. Anything that would have threatened Herod's temple would have been an immediate threat to Pilate. Pilate would have put him to death right away. They can't get any traction with that. Now, I want you to notice quickly four areas of illegality Four ways this trial is illegal in this text. Number one, it's in private. We know from the the Deuteronomic law, the Jews' law out of the scriptures, that trials were supposed to be public. And you can imagine why, right? Because it's going to cut down on this kind of stuff. So trials are supposed to be public, but it's not public, is it? Where is it? It's secret. It's secret. It's right in the house the private home of the high priest. This is so shady. The second thing that makes it illegal is it's during a feast. You're not supposed to have trials during the feast according to the Jewish law. Number three, it's based on false witnesses. Did you know in the theocracy, in God's law, if you bore false witness, you took the penalty of the person you bore false witness against? Fourthly, it's illegal because they were seeking a same-day execution. According to Jewish law, it had to be a whole day between the trial, verdict, and the execution. They want him dead by dawn. And that's, by the way, that's why they're doing this in the morning. Pilate does all of his judiciary stuff in the morning. First thing, when you're bright, eye, and, and, you know, you're you're bushy-tailed, right? That's that's when Pilate does this stuff. So they need to get this whole thing, they need all their ducks in a row, all their false witnesses, their story. They need to get it all lined up so that as soon as the sun rises, they can head over to Pilate's house and bring this case against Pilate. Jesus, that's what's going on here. Verse 60, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? Now, this is in regard to the temple being destroyed. In Jesus, verse 61, he remained silent and made no answer. 
Well, why doesn't he answer him? Because it's a stupid claim. It's baseless, and Jesus knows it. He has no reason to, to respond to this. And by the way, Isaiah 53, written six to 700 years before Christ, said that he would not open his mouth like a sheep before his shearers. He would be silent. Jesus is fulfilling scripture, fulfilling prophecy here. And again, the high priest, verse uh, 61, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Now, I want you to understand what he's saying there. Christ is Messiah, okay? Christ means Messiah. Are you the one who is coming to militarily, according to their thinking, militarily take over the, uh, Israel, Jerusalem? And are you the son of God, son of the blessed? That means son of God. The Jews didn't like to use God's name. They were afraid that perhaps they would take it in vain, so they used the blessed instead. They're saying, uh, Caiaphas is saying, are you, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of God? What a pointed question. What do you think Jesus is going to say? What does Jesus normally say? Normally, he kind of gets real vague and ambiguous, right? And the reason is because Jesus didn't want to die before it was time to die. He didn't want to reveal who he was too soon, too quickly, because it would speed up um, the, the, the freight train towards his imminent death. But now Jesus is going to die anyways. In fact, he knows it, and he wants to. So here's what he says in 62. Jesus said, I am. I am what? I am the Messiah, the Son of God. Doesn't get much clearer than that. And then he doubles down. He says, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Power, by the way, is synonymous with God's throne. The Son of Man is this figure in Daniel chapter 7 that is, listen guys, is divine. Go study it, Daniel chapter 7. Jesus is, is enmeshing himself with the figure of Daniel chapter 7, which is divine, who sits at the right hand of power. You know, some people say, I don't think Jesus really claimed to be God. I think that was something that is read in through the epistles, or maybe the early church sort of liked this idea of Jesus being God. Uh, no, first of all, you don't understand Judaism. Judaism, there's only one God, and anyone who says anything remotely differently is going to get stoned, okay? Uh, these guys believed Jesus was God because Jesus was explicit about his divinity. He says it right here. He says it right here. Verse 63, and the high priest, and this is like classic drama queen, the high priest tore his garments like you do right, when you're really trying to get everybody to go, here, here, he tears his garments, like Jews did that, that's what they did. What further witness do we need? In other words, all right, we got it, this is it, this is all we need. You have heard this blasphemy, what is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Let me make something very clear. The reason the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the religious people, the reason they killed Jesus was because he claimed to be God. Not, that's not why Pilate killed him. Totally different reason. The reason, that, and that's not, that's not the thing they came to lay before uh, Pilate as the reason, but the reason they want him dead is because he's claiming divine authority. And they don't like that. Blasphemy. There's no mistaking this. Jesus is claiming to be God. Verse 65. And some began to spit on him. This is the ultimate insult, right? The ultimate humiliating, disrespectful, repulsive, disgusting show of disdain for another human being. They immediately begin to spit in his face. And they covered his face and struck him, saying, 
prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Why are they calling him to prophesy? See, it was, it was, it was a basic understanding of the Messiah that he would not need to see to know. That he would be beyond physical sight. That he would have divine sort of intuition. So they're mocking him, right? They're, they're going, hey, you're the Messiah. Prophesy, which one of us is punching you in the face? And by the way, there's a cruelty here that I need to unpack. See, when your face is covered, you don't have the ability to react and flex and flinch when someone punches you in the face. So you're fully exposed to the complete weight of that blow. This is cruelty. It's mockery at every level. And this is just the temple guards. We haven't even gotten to the Romans yet. We'll look at that next week, right? 66. Now, the camera pans back to Peter. What will Peter do when things begin to get interesting? Now, as Peter was below in the courtyard, now remember, Peter doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't have a clue. He doesn't know if they're going to release Jesus and send him on his way, and Peter will be like, look, I was here. See, I told you I'm faithful. (laughs) I was right here waiting for you. All the other guys, they ran off. He doesn't know. He doesn't know that Jesus has just been condemned to death, that he's gotten this verdict of death, that he's being beaten, that he's being spit upon. Peter is just waiting. He's just in the courtyard waiting. And this little servant girl, one of the girls that worked for the high priest, this is a wealthy man. He no doubt had many servants. One of the servant girls in 67, seeing Peter warming himself, okay, he's doing one of these, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. Now, this isn't necessarily an accusatory tone. This is, just, this is just a statement. Now, Peter is fairly well known in Jerusalem. See, Jesus has been teaching, drawing pretty large crowds. And guess who's always standing next to Jesus? Peter. So this girl recognizes him. She goes, hey, I know you. You, you are, you're like his main guy. You're like his, you're like his right-hand guy, right? And she just points it out. But he denied it, verse 68, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. He just plays dumb. I don't know what you're talking about. He went out into the gateway. Now, Peter does what I think any of us would do. He realizes things are getting a little tense, that his you know, elaborate costume of having his hood over his face or whatever he was doing isn't working. So he, he makes his way out from the fire in the courtyard out into the gateway, thinking maybe he can make a dash for it if he needs to. Notice he says that. He went on into the gateway and... The rooster crowed. First time. How many times was the rooster going to crow before Peter would have denied him three times? Anybody? Twice. Here's the first one. It doesn't seem to do anything for Peter. It doesn't seem to jog his memory. It doesn't seem to bring any, call up any thing at this point. I think at this point his heart's just sort of pumping. He's trying to decide what to do. Should I run? Should I stay? I don't know. This girl recognizes me. And pretty 69, the servant girl, this is a different servant girl we know from the other gospels, a, a different servant girl in the gate saw him and began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. She goes, I recognize him too. I know this. But he again denied it. That's twice. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, okay? It's like someone having a New Jersey accent, you know? I mean, you just can't miss it. Was that, was that, was that okay? Was that good? I, don't know. I didn't plan to do that. Okay. Um, he's got an, a Galilean act, like they know, they, they can tell. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Now, put yourself in Peter's shoes for a moment, 
One second you're feeling pretty sure-footed, pretty brave, and then all of a sudden everything starts to unravel. This girl recognizes you, that girl recognizes you, and the snowball begins to form. Now everyone is saying, yeah, you are that guy. Your heart is pumping. Your amygdala is sending distress signals to your hypothalamus. Yes, I Googled that. And, and, and he's very concerned in this moment. He's very fearful. His fight or flight is kicking in, and flight is going to win. Peter doesn't know what to do, how to react, and so his solution is very base. It's very basic. It's very humanistic. It's very natural. He does something that no true disciple would do in order that he might show that he's not a true disciple. What would a true disciple never do? He would never call anathema on himself. May I be damned, essentially, if I know that man. He does something that every Christian knows that Christians shouldn't do, and that is to reject Christ. You know, it's interesting. This is just a total side note, but in Islam, I can't remember who said this. Someone pointed this out. Um, in Islam, there is a permissive way to actually deny Allah if you are caught in the hands of the enemy. Isn't it interesting we don't have that, Christianity? It's not to say we can't be redeemed if we denied Christ. I mean, clearly Paul, Peter did it, right? But it's so interesting that Christians don't think that way. See, for the Christian, for the formed Christian, for the mature Christian, the Christian that cherishes Christ, we say, take my life. And that's why you see it in the book of Acts. You see Stephen, right? Crush my head with your rock. Forgive them. Why? Why do we do that? Because that's what Jesus did. Because Jesus didn't deny his father. He didn't deny his father. Peter here is an example of rejection, of denial, of failure for us. And by the way, I just need to note this. Peter is Mark's source. Do you understand that? This is, this is really Peter's gospel. Mark wasn't an apostle. Peter got his information from Mark, or from, uh, pardon me, Mark got his information from Peter, which means Peter made sure that his failure was stitched and woven into the scripture. Why? Because as Christians, we're not defined by our success. We're defined by God's grace and our failure. You know, everyone has a plan. Someone's one, someone once said, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. Peter had a plan, and then everything went crazy, and his plan wasn't working anymore. Unformed and unmatured, Peter reverts back to his lifelong training, which is self-preservation. His animalistic instincts kick in. Got to save my life. And Peter, by the way, Peter's still running on his own reserve, his own resolve, not, not the spirit power, not the deep treasuring of Christ that Peter is going to, future Peter is going to run on. This is still immature, unformed Peter. Peter that still loves himself more than he loves Jesus. Verse 72, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Peter wept bitterly. <laughs> he failed. He did everything Jesus said that he would do. Now, Peter needed to fall, didn't he? We talked about that last week. He needed to fall because Peter's faith was in Peter. And he needed to shift that faith from himself into Christ. No medicine is more healing and simultaneously bitter than the tears of a believer who has sinned and failed Jesus. Anybody ever shed those tears? They're the worst, best thing in the world. You know the tears. You did what you didn't think you were going to ever do. And then you had to own it. 
Then you had to press into the grace of God and say, God, could you really forgive me for this? Like my kids with hydrogen peroxide, it's like, I gotta pour this thing on, it's gonna bubble and sting, it's gonna hurt, but it's gonna clean the wound. Peter's tears are painful, they're sorrowful, but they're healing. And I'll just say this as a side note, one of the greatest tools in the believer's tool belt against sin is the terrible feeling of letting down the Lord and sinning against him. It's, it's terrible. Now, the story transitions to Pilate. It's morning. They've gotten together their false witnesses, their false accusation, and they march over to Pilate's palace. Pilate doesn't live in Jerusalem. He lives in Caesarea on the coast. He didn't want to live in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was not um, probably uh, cool enough for him, but he did come in during feast days. So Pilate has his little temporary station set up, maybe his own house there. They bring Jesus in the morning, verse 1, as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held an, a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. This is all 71 members now. They probably had, they only had to have 26 there to make a decision. So now all 71 members are there. They, 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 con- they confirm the, 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 um, the, they confirm what they, they're going to do with Christ. They bound him, Jesus led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Pilate asked him, now it's Pilate's turn to examine this Gentile, non-Jew, the governor of Judea, directly under Caesar. Pilate, or, uh, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. Love that. So Jesus, such a Jesus thing to say, right? Pilate is asking the question that to him is most important. In other words, are you a king? Are you an insurrectionist? Are you going to be a problem for me? Are you going to be an issue? Do I need to worry about you? I think that's what he says on The Chosen. Do I need to worry about you? Are you going to cause some rebellion against me? I would imagine Pilate's tone is pretty unthreatened at this point. I don't think Jesus looks very threatening at this point. He's been beat up. He's been spat on. And Jesus wasn't a very impressive human being anyways. According to scripture, he was very common, pretty short, pretty normal looking Jewish man. Um, he's, he just got the tar beat out of him. He's sitting there with his, his probably peasant clothes ripped up already. And, and Pilate's like, are, are, you a, are you the king? Pilate's really not concerned at this moment, it seems. Verse three, or by the way, Jesus answering by, say, by saying, you have said so. That's, in other words, that's him saying, yeah, maybe in, not in the way that you think I am. Okay, whatever it is that you think, Pilate, that's not really what I'm claiming. That's kind of what Jesus is saying there. Verse three, the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Pilate's blown away. By the way, two little things that, that, that the world should be really um, caught off guard about Christians. Number one, that, that your character is true. Uh, he's he's kind of like, well, Jesus doesn't seem to need to defend himself, which tells you, which tells Pilate that Jesus' character speaks for itself. Also, um, our lack of concern for worldly affirmation should impress the, should impress the world, frankly, <laughs> because the world doesn't think like that. Christians should be like, well, I don't really care what you think because I know who I am in Christ, and that's kind of what Jesus is modeling for us here. Verse 6, now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. This was some kind of a PR deal between Rome and the Jews that Pilate found some, um, some you know, uh, popularity with. Hey, we'll, get, we'll give one person up every feast, okay, or every Passover. 
so this is what he's doing here. And among the rebels in prison, rebels are zealots, by the way, those that were anti-Roman rule. Uh, he had committed murder in the insurrection. This is a man named Barabbas, verse 7. This man named Barabbas, who was an insurrectionist, he was a terrorist, he had murdered someone in some kind of a recent rebel revolt. Uh, in the first century, there was all kinds of Jewish revolts. In fact, Rome got so tired of the Jewish revolts, that's why they marched in at 70 AD and leveled the city, and they had enough of it. Okay, they were, Jews were constantly rebelling, and this man, Barabbas, was part of this insurrection. Uh, and, and so Pilate holds him up. Do you want Barabbas? And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate do, uh, to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want for me to release you the king of the Jews? Now, Pilate thinks he found his out here because Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. He knows it would be wrong for him to uh, punish Jesus, to crucify Jesus. So he says, I'm gonna, I found a way to get out. I know Jesus is really popular with the crowds. I'll put him up on a stage and I'll ask the crowd. And they'll surely say, give us Jesus. We want Jesus. That's what, Peter, or that's what Pilate's expecting here, right? Verse 10, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Isn't that interesting? Pilate knew. He saw right through these guys. Pilate, the pagan, knew that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they were jealous of Jesus. They wanted his platform. They wanted his power. They wanted his prestige. That's what they wanted. Verse 11, we're almost done. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And one of the most surprising things that you find in Scripture, the crowd that days before had welcomed Jesus, Hosanna, save now, the crowds that loved his miracles and seemed to love his teachings and were always there for the shows. Verse 13, they cried out, crucify him. Some of the most sad words in the Bible. The crowd say, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? I mean, Pilate, the pagan, is confused by the evil motive of the crowd. Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. They adamantly ask for his brutal death. Verse 15, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. And that's where we'll pick up next week. What an interesting text. Now, I know you're familiar with this passage. I know you've seen this acted out in movies, and I know uh, a lot of what I've said is already um, probably common to you. You've seen it depicted many, multiple times. You've read, read it before. You've heard sermons on it. So what are we supposed to learn from this? What are we supposed to take from this? How is this supposed to press us? Well, I think we're supposed to see something here. First of all, I think we're supposed to see our hero our hero is good, he's cool, he's calm, he's collected in the face of danger, in the face of evil, in the face of opposition, in the face of rejection. Jesus is faithful. Aren't you glad? We see our hero. But there's another thing I want you to see. We also see multiple ways of becoming the villain. Multiple ways of becoming the villain and mishandling the Son of God. The text should make us ask this very simple question. It's the question I opened with. What have I done or what am I doing with the Son of God? And that's the question I want to press today on everyone here. What am I doing? Listen, what am I doing with the Son of God? What am I doing? The one who has come into my life claiming absolute authority, the one who has come into my life saying he is the king of all kings, what am I doing with him? And which person in this story am I? 
I want you to consider that briefly. There's four different avenues here. There's four different ways that you can mishandle the Son of God. Let's look at them briefly. The first way is what the Sanhedrin does, and that is knowingly and actively and religiously seeking to silence him. Knowingly and actively and religiously seeking to silence him. See, the religious leaders knew who Jesus was. That's why they wanted to kill him. I firmly believe that. They were there when Jesus popped out of the water at his baptism and the Holy Spirit landed and the Father spoke. They saw his miracles. They knew the scriptures. Yet they were the most adamantly opposed to him. Isn't that interesting? The most adamantly opposed to Jesus' existence are the most fundamentally aware of his authority. I truly believe that. I'll say it again. The most, those most adamantly opposed to Jesus' existence are those most fundamentally aware of his authority or his claim to authority. I think the people that don't want Jesus to rule their life are the most outspoken and most ardent rejectors of Christ. I find it all the time. As an evangelist, as a pastor, I talk to people and they're angry. They're so angry about this idea of Jesus and this idea of the gospel and this idea of authority. Who do you think you are? How dare you? And I always ask this question. I go, do you have some background in the church? Yeah, I used to go to church. Interesting. Have you found that? Oftentimes, the people that hate Jesus the most are the people that know the truth. Why do they hate Jesus? Because they know what he's asking them to do and they don't like it. Let me say it this way. The implications of his total sovereignty in light of his clear call to faithful respondency is terrifying to those seeking total autonomy. You understand what I mean by that? People that know Jesus' words know what Jesus wants. He wants your whole life. He's king, not just not just the sacrifice, he's the king. And that's terrifying, and people push back against that. And that's what the Sanhedrin is picturing for us here this morning. So I'm asking you, is that you? Are you systematically trying to prove Jesus wrong so you don't have to do what he says? A lot of people do. Maybe not a lot in here, I don't know, but a lot of people do. The second thing you could do with the Son of God, the second way you can mishandle the Son of God, is you can attempt to remain neutral and guiltless towards him. This is much more common, I find, in the world. As I interact with non-believers, I find more and more people that are kind of like, yeah, I don't really know. I don't really know what to do. with This is what Pilate pictures for us here. See, Pilate doesn't really know the Bible. He doesn't really know a lot about who the Messiah, he doesn't really care. He was a pantheistic. He worshiped the Greek gods and the emperor cult. He thought Caesar was God. He didn't really care uh, about the Jewish God. In fact, they were very um, disdainful <laughs> towards it, right? But what he does know is he knows Jesus is innocent. And so what does Pilate do? He tries to wash his hands like an agnostic of having to deal with Jesus. And does it work? No, it doesn't work because he knows too much. Romans tells us that every human knows on some level, every human has enough evidence to understand the reality, you know, we may not know everything, but it says in Romans that we as humans, we, by nature, we systematically reject the truth. So Pilate is standing in this place for us, embodying this place of the callous, conscience, or conscious agnostic. I'm just going to remain neutral. But let me say something here, okay? Um, you are responsible for what you don't believe. And you are responsible for all the information that you've been given. The third way we can uh, handle Jesus is to let others do your thinking for you. 
This is also really common, especially among young people. I talk to a lot of young people. I know I am a young people, but even younger than my young people, um, that, that are kind of just like spouting off what they read on Twitter. And you press them, you know? You're like, hey, well, why don't you believe Jesus? Well, uh, you just kind of, you know, and they give me a bumper sticker. And I'm like, you're not really thinking, are you? You're just reciting. You're regurgitating. And this is, we see this in the crowd here, don't we? We see a group of people that are just doing what everyone else is doing. I mean, why do these guys yell crucify him? Because that's what the crowd's doing. I mean, have you guys ever found this true? Humans are pretty smart. Crowds are stupid, aren't they? I mean, they're stupid. If you're letting a crowd do your thinking, if you're letting TikTok do your thinking for you, you're stupid. Is that too harsh? You're being stupid. How about that? You're, being, you're choosing stupid. Think about it. Use your head. If you're going to reject Christ, fine. Tell me why. Don't just tell me some fridge magnet thing, magnet thing that your friend said on social media. I don't care. We are the least thinking generation I think there's ever been because we let everyone on social media do our thinking for us. The crowd here is stupid because they're not actually looking. They're not actually thinking. They're just following the crowd. And listen to me. You are responsible for what you believe even if someone else led you to believe it. Just because someone else told you something doesn't mean you're off the hook from believing it. Did you know that? You're not going to stand before a holy and righteous God and he says, why did you reject and kill my son? And you say, well, Bill told me to. Doesn't matter. Don't follow the crowd. And this is true for non-Christians. Obviously, this is also true for Christians. There's a lot of Christians that have built their whole faith on the fact that all their friends have faith. And that's really the problem because then your friends start deconstructing their faith and all of a sudden you're deconstructing your faith because you built your faith on your friend's faith. Don't do that. Now, there's a fourth way here to mishandle the Son of God, and that is Peter's way. Peter, the believer. Peter, the Christian. Peter was saved, right? He proved that by repenting and believing the gospel. Peter loved, uh, loved him, but he passively chose not to stand for him and with him. And this represents, I think, a lot of Christians in the West. I think there's a lot of people that are sitting right where Peter was sitting. They've gone, yeah, I believe in Jesus. You'll meet a lot of them, actually. When you start, if you start evangelizing, you start talking to people about the gospel, and people go, no, I believe in Jesus. And you're like, why are you not living for him? Why, are you, why do you not talk about him? Now, they could be false converts, and that's very likely too. Or they could be in a Peter phase. They could be in a phase where they have actually not realized that to not stand for Jesus is to put him on the cross. That, that he died for them, and they need to be willing. We need to be willing to give our life for him. Peter loved Jesus, yet he failed to stand for him. Why? Because Peter's faith was when what he was going to do for Jesus rather than what Jesus did for him. And this is what you'll find in Christians that don't stand for their faith. They're only thinking about what they're doing for Jesus. They're not thinking about what Jesus has done. Because when you think about what Jesus has done for you, you can't help but be verbal. about the. I mean, that's why believing the gospel is the answer to everything. If you really believe in the gospel, you're going to be verbal about your faith. Show me someone that really believes the gospel, I'll show you an evangelist. It's not secret. Being an evangelist is not a secret skill. It's not like nunchucks. If you're excited, is that a secret skill? I don't know. If you're excited about Jesus, you're going to talk about it. You know how I know this? Because people talk about everything they're excited about. Oh, man, I had the best cheesecake last night, blah, 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 blah. Wow, you're an evangelist. No, you're just someone that really enjoyed cheesecake. If you're believing the gospel, you're going to talk about it. That sounds like a simplification, but it's really not, Okay. 
Peter denied Jesus because his love for Jesus was still shallow. It hadn't grown yet, and, 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 and it hadn't surpassed his love for himself. He loved himself more than he loved Jesus in that moment. Now, Peter thought, here's the real thing. Peter thought he was the hero. That's what he thought. He thought he was the hero of his own story. It turns out he had a lot more villain in him than he thought. Peter wasn't the hero. Now, there are many Christians today in our culture that believe in Jesus. They have not yet stood for Jesus. So who are you in this story? I've given you four different avenues. Who are you in this story? Are you, uh, uh, maybe, maybe you're not any of these, but at some point you were. Some of you were systematically Christ rejectors for much of your life. Some of you were just sort of passive, passive ignorers. I was a rejector. I knew the truth. I knew God was real. And I said, I don't want his hands on my morals. I don't want his hands on my money. I don't want his hands on my decisions. I don't want his hands on my life. So get your hands out. I'll worship you later. That's what I said. And then God saved me. And I couldn't say no. <laughs> okay. Praise God. Some of you guys are, are in that place of the crowd where you're just kind of going with the flow. You're not really thinking for yourself. You're just listening to people uh, online. You're listening to Richard Dawkins. You're listening to Bill Nye the Science Guy. You're listening to Joe Rogan. You're listening to whoever the numbskull is that you turn into on, on Twitter or whatever. Okay, so, so that might be some of you. Who are you? I want to read a quote for you. This is a powerful quote by C.J. Mahaney. He says, were you there when they crucified my Lord in gross spiritual act. That's an old song, by the way. There's an old song that has that line. We must answer yes, not as spectators only, but as guilty participants, plotting, scheming, betraying, and handing him over to be, handing him over to be crucified. We may try and wash our hands of the guilt like Pilate, but our attempts will be futile. Listen to this. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading us to repentance. Only the man or woman who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And we all, if we are to believe and have saving faith, we all must answer to some degree or another, yes. Had I have been there, I would have been in the crowd. Had I have been there, I would have been in the courtyard. Had I have been there, I would have been one of the Sanhedrin. Had I have been there, I would have been Pilate. Had I have been there, I would have been Herod. Had I have been there, I would have been Judas, perhaps. At one point, all of us have taken part in the systematic rejection and crucifying of the Son of God. Can you own that? If you can't own that, then you are not saved. It's called repentance. It's called saying, I'm not the hero, I'm the villain. But the hero came to save the villain. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? What should our response be to this story? Who should we see ourselves as? Let me give you a fifth option, okay? There is a character in this story that I think you should see yourself as. His name's Barabbas. Who is Barabbas? Barabbas was everything Jesus was being accused of. He was a murderer. He was a terrorist. He was guilty. He was rightfully condemned. He was everything Jesus was being spat on for. His name was Bar Abba. You know what that means? Son of the Father. Isn't that interesting? 
Judas deserved the cross. In fact, it's very likely the cross Jesus was hung on was made for Judas. Three crosses were prepared that morning. Three executions. One man, two, fe- two thieves, one murderer, all guilty, all awaiting execution. Imagine being Barabbas. Imagine sitting in your cell. You don't know that any of this is going on. You know you're going to die in the morning. You know you deserve it. Outside, you hear shouts and screaming, and it says, crucify him, and you think, that's me. They're talking about me. You hear the jingling of the keys coming down the hall. The guard opens the door, begins to lead you out. You go, here it is, my last moments before agonizing death. And then all of a sudden, they take your handcuffs off, and they say, go. What do you mean, go? Is this a trick? And then you look over and you see a beaten, mangled Jewish man. And he is taking your place. And you're confused. Who is this man? Why is he taking my place? And he walks away free. Barabbas is a beautiful eternal picture of penal substitutionary atonement. That Jesus took what Barabbas deserved and Barabbas took what Jesus deserved. Isn't that amazing? Barabbas went free. He was a free man. Why did he go free? Because Jesus took his place. See, we're not set free just because God chose to forgive our sin. We're free because Jesus paid for our sin. That's why he's both just and the justifier. It's important. Why did he go, why did he deserve this? He didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. Why does he get to, uh, why does he uh, get in the place of death? He gets the life of Jesus. He gets to live the life that Jesus should have lived in that moment. Now, the story of Barabbas is not a story of saving faith. It's a story of what can happen if you have saving faith. Are you with me? You don't get the free deed of saving faith unless you believe in Christ. And I don't know if Barabbas believed in Christ. We don't know. We don't know what happened to him. Who knows? I hope he did. I hope he took a look back like the leper that took a look back and went, why, why did that man take my place? I really hope he did, but we don't know. Now let me end just with some practical things and we're gonna break into groups. Let me end with just some practical things. Um, what do we need to do today? What is this calling us to do today? I want you guys to retire your inner hero. It's such an unworldly thing to say, isn't it? But I'm the hero. I need to believe in myself. That's what we've been told since we were babies. Believe in yourself. You can do anything you want to do. No, you can't. You're a villain. If you wanted to come here and feel good about yourself, you're going to the wrong church, okay? No, you can't. No, you're not. You need to retire your inner villain or your inner hero because you're not the hero. That's actually really relieving to say, isn't it? You're not the hero. Now, let me tell you two ways to tell if you're trying to be the hero, okay? Two ways to tell if you're trying to be the hero. The first is pride and shame, and those are two sides of the same coin. Did you know that? Pride and shame. Are you prideful? Are you shame-filled? It's because you think, probably, because you think you're the hero. Pride, when you get prideful, um, it's because you think, I'm the hero, and I'm crushing it. I'm awesome. I'm doing good things. I'm doing the right things. I'm making good decisions, and that's why God's blessing me. You know, I got a good marriage because I'm a good guy. We dated right. We did premarital, all this stuff, right? I got a good job because I went to school. God's blessing me, right? I'm the hero. No, God is just kind. You could have been born in Uganda. You could have been born in a third world country. You could have been born in North Korea. 
No, God is kind, right? But here's the other side of the coin. If you think you're the hero, then you hate yourself when you don't do everything right. And this is probably more common, especially for Christians. We start loathing and condemning ourselves because we're not living up to our own heroic expectations of ourselves. Anybody struggle with that? (laughs) Ask yourself these questions. Do you find yourself constantly comparing yourself to others? You do. You do. We all do, right? Either pridefully or insecurely. Both of those are a sign that you think you're the hero of your story. Both of those are, are you going, well, well, I'm the hero, so I'm comparing myself, right? Do you start adding up your accomplishments or success when you find yourself failing? Something, you, you mess up and you go, well, yeah, but I did those three right things last week. You're still trying to be the hero. Cut it out. You're still trying to be the hero. Do you find yourself overreacting anytime someone criticizes you or critiques you? Why do we do that? Because you think you're the hero. Your hero needs to die. You're not the hero. You're not the hero. Now, let me give you another way of telling if you think you're the hero. You put yourself in situations that Jesus hasn't asked you to be in. Okay, this is what, this is what I think Peter's doing here. You can argue with me. That's fine. This is what I think Peter's doing. I don't think Jesus told Peter, hey, come with me to the courtyard. I don't think Jesus was being held, you know, led away in handcuffs. Said, Peter, come awkwardly stand with the guards so that you can deny me. No, I don't, I don't think that's what happened. I think Peter, and his wheels are turning, and he goes, I got to prove that I'm the hero. I got to prove that I'm faithful, so I'm going to go hang out in the courtyard. Jesus never asked Peter to do that. What would a better thing maybe for Peter to do? Maybe grab the disciples and go have a prayer meeting. Maybe grab the disciples and go do what Jesus was trying to get him to do in the first place. Stay awake and pray. But instead, Peter takes things into his own hands, and he goes, I'm going to go compensate and prove my hero-ness. When you think you are the hero, you feel the need to create hero scenarios and prove your hero-ness. So this is the person that says, I'm going to fix everyone's problems. And someone has a problem, I'll sense your problem. And I need to jump in and fix it. Why? Because you think you're the hero. And that seems very noble, and that's why people don't check it. It seems very noble to be everyone's hero, but it's actually not. It's prideful because you're not everyone's hero. Ask yourself this question, do you only feel like you're serving Jesus if you're doing hard things? Do you only feel like, if, if, you're, if you're not on the mission field, do you feel like, well, I'm just, I'm changing diapers? That is serving Jesus. Do you constantly question if you're doing enough for the Lord and find yourself constantly overcommitting? Do you say yes to things just because they are good, even if Jesus hasn't asked you to do them? Do you always assume everything is your fault, even when other people are struggling? Stop trying to be the hero. You're not the hero. You're not the hero. This is the classic, classic disposition of someone who thinks they are the hero. They do, not list, they do not embrace God's gift of limitations. Peter Scazzera talks a lot about that in, in uh, his emotionally healthy church. The, 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 the grace of limitations. You're not the hero. Enjoy that. So what do we do? We need to retire our inner hero. But we don't need to fire our inner hero. We need to reorient Okay, we still need to run into burning buildings. We still need to take on things that Jesus cares about, but we need to do it as a response to his perfect victory. We need to stop trying to take Jesus' job as the director and just take our part as part of the cast because that's where we belong. We need to work hard to not find our worth in our work, but in his work. And that just means you give him glory for everything, even the stuff that feels like you produced. You didn't. It's his grace. Amen? Do yourself a big favor. Let Jesus be the hero because he is the hero. 
And always remember this. If you take one thing away, and you'll forget 98% of what I said today. If you take one thing away, you are Barabbas. Praise God. Praise God. Your wrath has been taken. The sin beating that you deserved has been taken. And you walk away free if your faith is fully in Christ. And even if you're in a Peter-like posture, even if you're in that place where, man, I I just haven't really stood yet for Christ, the Holy Spirit is going to work that out of you. He's going to give you boldness. He gave it to the disciples. He'll give it to us. Amen? Amen. All right. Let me pray. We've got about 20 minutes. We'll get break into some groups, have some good discussion. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you, Jesus, that you were true, that you were faithful, that you stood up under man's worst, that you absorbed the righteous wrath and indignation of God the Father that was due to us, that you gave us our righteousness based on your righteousness, and, Lord, that we now have this future and this hope in you, God. Lord, as we spend some time in conversation, Holy Spirit, would you move through the church? We are the church. The church has more than one mouth. So, Lord, I pray that you would minister to each other, Lord, through each other this morning, and that we would have good conversation. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.